If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus 17. We're going to be continuing our series on Exodus by looking at verses 1 through 7 together. So before we read it, to remind you of where we've been, the past two weeks we've covered Israel's wilderness wanderings after they've been delivered by God from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, and then after they've crossed over the Red Sea. And just last week we saw from Exodus 16 how the, Israel, the Israelites found themselves in the desert and without food. So we saw in Exodus 16, 4, it said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So we saw last week that part of why God is leading the Israelites through the wilderness like this is to test Israel, to see whether they will trust him and obey him and follow him as they see him provide for their needs. And so as we come to this section today, with that in mind, we see a curious thing. Because in this section, we see Israel turn the tables on God. Instead of God testing Israel, this passage describes Israel as testing the Lord. So let's read Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7 together. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Friends, let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word, we ask that you would um, open it up to us and help us to understand what is going on. Lord, I pray that as we see this, would we understand what is going on in our own hearts as we uh, face doubts and questions about you? Lord, and I pray that you would show us your heart for us. Lord, your heart of mercy and grace, even in the midst of our doubting. So we ask that you would meet us. We ask that you would help us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Is the Lord among us or not? That's how verse 7 summarizes the complaint that Israel has against the Lord in this passage. Here they are, wandering through the desert and totally dependent on the Lord for all of their needs. And if God doesn't provide for them, they're done. And yet it seems in this passage that every crisis they've gone to, no matter how many times God's delivered them, it's only led to their fears increasing to the point where doubt sets in. And this all comes to a head with this question in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever asked a question like this? Is God really for me here? Have you ever doubted God's heart towards you or wondered whether God is with you and wants the best for you? Have you ever asked questions like, why is this happening to me? Or why isn't God answering these prayers? Friends, this is a common experience for all of us, and it's one that tests our faith and our trust in the Lord, and one that often tempts us to doubt that God is who he says he is. And as we study this passage today, we're going to see that this is a very similar place to where Israel is. Uh, the passage before us is actually littered with legal imagery that give us a picture of the scene like this. Israel is accusing God. They've put him on trial. And they're demanding that he prove he is actually present and actually for them. That he is going to continue to provide for them. My hope for us this morning is that we would recognize our own hearts when it comes to this area. That we would recognize in ourselves our own propensity to doubt God's presence in the midst of difficult circumstances. When trials and difficulties arise, we too are tempted to put God on trial in our hearts, questioning why he's allowed our situation to happen or why he's not delivering us from our circumstances. And at times, in the perceived absence of God's presence, we too can even doubt whether he's even there at all or for us at all. But here's ultimately what I hope to show you this morning from this passage. Because God is able to prove himself faithful against all of our doubts and questions, we should trust him. Because God is faithful, is, is able to prove himself faithful against all of our doubts and questions, we should trust him. And we're going to see this by examining the passage in four parts this morning. The first part will be God questioned. Then God accused. Then God vindicated. And lastly, God judged. So, as we look at this, how does God prove himself in this passage? Let's look at the first two verses and examine God questions. The first two verses set the stage for Israel's question here. So let's look at these verses again together. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. 
but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So let's get a clear picture of what's going on here. Israel is traveling through a place called the wilderness of sin. Uh, but the passage describes this journey not as them wandering, but actually that they're going from one place to another as they're being directed by the Lord. In this particular situation, they're directed by the Lord to set up camp at a place called Rephidim. Now, the irony is that Rephidim means resting place. And yet, this resting place has no water for them to drink. So we see God has led them to a resting place that seemingly lacks water. Now, stop me if you've heard this story before, because it seems to be the exact type of situation where we've seen God provide for the people of Israel in the past. And given their past experience, we would expect that Israel would remember God's power to provide for them, and that they would seek for him to provide for them again in this moment. All they need to do is pray and wait for him. But that's not what we see here. Instead, they turn once again to complain to Moses, which we've seen in the past. Now, in the previous passages, the word that, that described their complaining has been grumbling. But here, we see Israel up the ante. They've gone from grumbling to quarreling. Their complaints have intensified by a matter of degrees. In fact, the word for uh, quarreling here has a distinct legal flavor to it. They're essentially bringing a charge against Moses and demanding that he provide water for them. And even though they're complaining to Moses, it's very clear that their complaint is actually against God, which is what Moses points out here in verse 2. Moses has brought them to where God told them to go. So Moses points out to them that they're actually making demands here against the Lord. And what it reveals is that they're questioning whether God is going to provide for them. And here's what this question reveals. Israel is assuming that the presence of need reveals that God is not near to them. That the presence of their need here reveals that God is not near to them. They're thinking, if God really was among them, as he said he would be, they would not have a need for water right now. And friends, this is a trap that we ourselves fall into often, is it not? We're praying, and we're waiting for God to provide, and it seems like the answer is an indefinite no. We're stuck in our circumstances. We're stuck in our need. And instead of waiting for the Lord and seeking him, we turn this wilderness into a place where we question whether God is near to us. And this in turn becomes fertile ground for doubts and hard thoughts about the Lord. As though if we can't think of a good reason why God hasn't provided for us, then there can't possibly be a good reason at all. But this can twist itself in another way as well. Assuming that because we're in a place of trouble, 
we must not be on God's path for us in the first place. And what's so dangerous about this way of thinking is that at its core, it reveals a functional belief that the Christian life is supposed to be free from hardship. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the fantasy epic The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. So if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that this story centers around a harrowing plan for a hobbit named Frodo and a small band of heroes to travel across hundreds of miles to sneak into the land of the evil Lord Sauron and to destroy his one ring of power in the fires of Mount Doom. And the story is long. And it's epic, but it's long. And along the way, we see this immense suffering that Frodo goes through that changes him and leaves him with a wound that will never heal. We see some of our heroes die, and we see hundreds, if not thousands, of other people die. And then finally, when Frodo gets to Mount Doom and he throws the ring to destroy into the fire... Now he's trapped on this mountain with lava erupting all around him. And there, right as it seems he's about to die on this mountain, eagles show up and fly him to safety. Now, it's an incredible story, and I hope you don't feel like I've butchered it. I love it. But as we look at that story, and people have read it over the many decades, there's one very specific critique that people have had about this whole plan to destroy the ring and how it plays out. And the critique is this. Why not just ride an eagle to the mountain and drop the ring in? I mean, wouldn't that have like saved the whole trip and all the suffering and the death that happened in the story? Just use the eagles, right? Now, in the case of the Lord of the Rings, the answer is simple. I mean, without it, there wouldn't be a story worth reading, right? No character development of our heroes, no lessons for us to be learned about the preciousness of good and the beauty of a story of evil being conquered. But really, I think for us, we can kind of function in this same space. Why doesn't God just bring the eagles? Why not just skip the pain and hardship and loss and want and just arrive? And to that, we must humbly submit to the wisdom of God and recognize that God has better things for us than simply our comfort or lack of hardship or suffering. And one of those things is how he makes us more like him through the needs. He teaches us dependence. He teaches us what has eternal value. And a huge part of the purpose in our needs is to point us to our greater need, the need for God himself. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.3 makes it clear that this is part of the point of Israel's needs in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus himself 
when he pointed out the costliness of following him in Mark 8, in the midst of it, he said this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Friend, are difficult circumstances tempting you to question God's nearness to you? Whatever question we have about our circumstances, we must recognize that God has greater purposes for us than simply to keep us from suffering. Now, unfortunately, Israel does not have this mindset at all, and we see that their questions actually intensify into accusations against God. So let's look at God accused in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 really show us that the Israelites are not listening to Moses' rebuke, but instead they're turning to accuse God of murderous intentions with them. So let's read verses 3 and 4. But the people of Israel thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses' prayer to God in verse 4 reveals just how serious the Israelites are about this accusation. Stoning would have been a traditional way of executing capital punishment. So essentially, what we see is that in Israel's mind, they've tried their case. And they've judged that Moses intends to kill them. And they're so worked up that Moses is afraid that they're going to sentence him right there and execute him. So what we have here is a figurative trial about the Israelites, that the Israelites are executing against the Lord's anointed leader. And their accusation is that God has not simply delayed provision, but that he intends to do them harm. He intends to kill them and their children, and their livestock. But as we consider these accusations, in light of what we've seen, it's clear that Israel's accusations fall short here. I mean, keep in mind that on the day that they're making this accusation, they were being fed by God bringing manna from heaven for them, as they had been sustained by every day. In this, we really get a picture of just how destructive our questions and doubts can become if we don't remember what has God has done for us and take our burdens to him and his word. The Israelites here move on from questioning whether he'll provide to assuming that God's heart towards them is malicious. And the irony is that in light of what God has done for them, their accusations against God's heart reveal more about their own hearts than God's. It reveals just how deep their lack of trust goes. And friends, as we look at the rest of the Bible, this is exactly how the rest of the Bible interprets the lesson of the wilderness wanderings of Israel. All you need to do is look with me at Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, 
though they had seen my work. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this same theme of warning in Hebrews 12. And so after quoting this very passage of Psalm 95 that we read, the writer of Hebrews goes on to exhort like this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Friends, these are just two of several places in the scriptures where the wilderness wanderings of Israel are used as warnings against losing trust in the Lord and falling away from him. Because unchecked hard thoughts about God can lead to a hardening of our own hearts against God. And even by adopting this language of hardened hearts, really calls our attention to some alarming similarities between Israel's constant mistrust of God and Pharaoh's hardened heart against the will of the Lord as God had revealed his power and judgment through the plagues of Egypt. If you remember back at the beginning of Exodus, we saw over and over God demonstrate his power to Pharaoh by sending plagues to Egypt. And God's message to Pharaoh was clear. Obey my commands and submit to my lordship. And every time God, uh, every time Pharaoh uh, saw his demonstration of power in the plagues, he would turn and he would submit to God, but only change his mind and harden his heart again the moment that relief came. Friends, is Israel any different here? God's message to Israel time and time again is this. Trust me. I will deliver you and provide for your needs. I will be with you and protect you. Simply follow me and obey my commands. And yet, time and time again, in spite of all the ways they've seen God provide for their needs, time and time again, when faced with a new struggle, they turn to doubting and complaining. Friends, let's get very pointed here. At the core of virtually every sin is a failure to trust in God and follow his ways. Let's put this another way. Virtually every sin we commit makes a statement that we think we know better than God what is good for us. That things would be much better if God did things our way. And there's another way of saying that. It's pride. It's unbelief. It's listening to the whisper that Eve heard in the garden when the serpent asked, did God actually say? So my friends, heed the warning from scriptures. In all our troubles and cares, we must cast them on the Lord. We must be on guard against hard thoughts towards the Lord. And as we think about this, a couple diagnostic questions to ask. In your suffering and trials and hardships, are you finding yourself slow to turn to prayer and turn to God's word? Are you finding yourself slow to let God's word inform your perception of what you're going through? Are the comforts of God's word falling short on your ears? Let's turn it another way. Is there an area of your life right now that you know God is calling you to follow him and trust him and obey him 
Maybe it's an area of struggle and sin that you're going through that you know you need to give up. And yet, the, the burden and the loss that you think you will experience by giving that up makes it not worth it. And so you know in your heart that you are just ignoring what God's word says about that area. Friends, God is trying to get our attention today. And he's doing it graciously. He's doing it patiently. He's seeking to get our attention and call us to remember who he is. To look to him. And if you're following me here, you should be asking this question. How is Israel's response here to the Lord any better than what Pharaoh's was? How is God going to deal with Israel's lack of trust? For ourselves, how is God going to deal with our lack of trust in him? And so let us look to the text, to verse 4 and 5, where we see God vindicated. We see in verse 5 and 6 that God responds to Moses' prayer, and he responds by setting up his own trial. So let's read 5 and 6 together. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. As we read these verses, it seems that we can best understand them as God setting up his own trial. By calling the elders of Israel as witnesses, he's gathering those in Israel who would judge legal disputes among the people. Furthermore, he tells Moses to take with him the staff with which Moses struck the Nile. If you remember all the way back in Exodus 7 and the first plague in Egypt... God instructed Moses there to strike the Nile with this very staff. And God turned the waters of the Nile there into blood. And we saw when we studied this passage that it really represented a judgment against Pharaoh for refusing the command of the Lord to let Israel go. And so in the passage before us, we have an assembly of the elders of Israel going with Moses, who's bringing with him the staff of judgment. God is going to make his defense against Israel's accusations. God is going to settle the dispute and show who is in the wrong. But the other thing to point out here quickly is where God tells them to go. To the rock at Horeb. This is the very place that we see God first reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 3.12. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the very place where God first revealed himself to Moses would be the place that he would answer Israel's accusations against him. And so... God tells Moses to strike the rock at Horeb. And as Moses obeys what God commanded him to do, out of the rock, he provides water for Israel. And don't miss this. 
God is once again providing for Israel miraculously. He directs them where to go. He tells Moses what to do. He stands before the rock, and out of that rock, he provides life-sustaining water for them to drink. And in doing so, God vindicates his own power and provision for Israel against their accusations. He once again proves that he is faithful to them. But notice that this also reveals to us God's own heart. Here we have Israel testing God's patience with their doubts and accusations. And in response, out of God's heart flows mercy and gracious provision. Notice as well that God vindicates himself in this passage by demonstration. He doesn't deliberate with them or debate their premise or prove how point by point Israel is wrong He answers by showing them his power. And friends, this teaches us something about how God deals with our questions. Although sometimes we do get answers, it is more often the case that God answers by pointing us back to his own character. Back to who he is. Oftentimes we feel that what we need is a satisfactory answer to the question, why? And that until we get that, we can be hesitant to trust the Lord. And like I said, while it's true, God does sometimes give us answers. It is much more often the case that he redirects our question and he calls us to trust in his own character. And we need to see here that God is able to vindicate himself. And he is able to vindicate his commitment to his people by his own actions rather than by responding to their questions. Consider what Philip Grand Reichen has to say along these lines. He says, it is not our place to bring God to trial. The real question is not what do we think about him, but what does he think about us? It is not a matter of us reaching a verdict about him, but of him declaring his verdict on us. But here's the thing. If God is going to bring a verdict on the people of Israel here, it would seem like Israel is in big trouble. So let's see how God deals with that in this next section. God judged As we get to the end of the text, Moses names the place where these events took place to memorialize what they represent. So look at verse 7 with me. And Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This verse tells us that Moses calls the place Massa, which means temptation, and Meribah, which means contention, because it is here that Israel quarreled with and tested the Lord. It's as though he's pronouncing the final verdict. And the verdict declares that God's own character has been vindicated and Israel doubts of God's heart is in the wrong. 
They have falsely accused the Lord. And in his vindication, their own heart of mistrust and unbelief is on full display. The people of Israel were ready to pass judgment on the Lord and to stone his appointed leader as punishment. But instead, it is found that they are the ones at fault. And in testing God, they are showing once again that they have failed God's own test of keeping his commandments and statutes. But notice this passage ends with a verdict against Israel and yet not a judgment, not a punishment for Israel. Think about it. Instead of rejecting Israel and casting them aside, God provides the very thing they need for life. And he does so graciously, without anger or rebuke against them. Furthermore, Israel is proving their own sin by their actions, that they're no less worthy of judgment than Pharaoh himself. So why doesn't God reject them as he'd rejected Pharaoh? Friends, what we see in this passage is that God does pass judgment on Israel, but in such a way that he takes that judgment on himself. Even though he himself is the innocent party here. Look with me again at the beginning of verse 6. What the Lord says to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. So visualize this scene with me once again. Moses standing before the presence of the Lord at the rock of, at Horeb. Surrounded by the elders of Israel with the staff of judgment in Moses' hands. And following the Lord's command, Moses takes the staff of judgment and strikes the rock. The place where God is standing before them in some form. Representatively, Moses is striking God himself with this staff of judgment. And from it flows life-giving water to Israel. Do you see what's going on here? The rod of judgment is turned away from the people of Israel and instead strikes the Lord. Oh, my friends, as we consider this we cannot dismiss how clearly this imagery points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a mistake. This is intentional. It seems clear here that God is intending to prepare his people for the mercy that he would provide in Christ. Where on the cross, the judgment of sinful man would fall instead on the sinless Savior. That Christ would die in our place and that from his death would flow life-giving water to sinners like you and me. Because here we see clearly a picture of the gospel. Imagine with me, you and I standing before the courtroom of heaven, every one of our sins in action and thought and motivation listed out for all the courtroom to hear. We are rightly judged as sinners, rightly deserving the justice of God. And yet, 
as that judgment comes down, we see that this judgment falls on God's Son. All, all of our sin counted against Him. And all of His righteousness credited to us. And as He is struck, life-giving water is poured out for us. Remember Christ's words in John 4, verses 13 and 14, where he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And friend, if you think that this might be all too convenient, that this connection is in some way strained, then look with me at, at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 4, where Paul speaks directly of the wilderness wanderings of Israel and makes a direct connection of the rock to Christ. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. We don't even have time to get into this morning how the wilderness wanderings of Israel which go on for 40 years, are essentially bookended by stories of God providing for them water from a rock in the desert. And the intention of that seems to be in part that from the beginning of the wilderness wanderings here to the end, God was providing water for them. And so here Paul is saying that this imagery of the rock providing life-sustaining water points us to Christ. That God's physical provision of water in the wilderness points us to the spiritual provision they receive by his merciful dealings with them. And Paul is saying that the same spiritual water they received in the wilderness sustains the church to this day. That water is Christ. And when we drink this water... When we trust in God and his provision of Christ for us, our souls will be sustained in Christ. We will have eternal life through Christ. So friends, as we come to a close this morning, we see once again that God has vindicated his character against Israel's questions and doubts. And in doing so, he has demonstrated for us once again his heart of mercy and gracious provision to those that don't deserve it. I'd like to invite the band to come up now. So friend, where are you this morning? Are you here teetering between the edge of doubt and belief? Wondering whether it's worth giving up your own way of living for the sake of Christ? Friend, let the good news push you towards faith. You can trust him. He can satisfy the longings of your heart. 
Friend, do you stand under condemnation this morning thinking that God cannot possibly draw near to you because of your sin, because of your doubts, because of your questions, because of your unbelief, because of your hard thoughts towards God? Friend, look at the mercy of God. You may be as undeserving of grace as the Israelites, and yet God has not forsaken his people. If you are in Christ, you will not be struck. Christ has taken the condemnation for you. You may fail him again and again. You may mistrust him and doubt his love. But in Christ, he will never withhold his mercy and forgiveness for you. Let's stand. Friends, how do we respond? Friends, let us respond with humility, seeing our dependence on him as a good thing and a place where we can be thankful as we see how he provides for us. Let us respond with confidence as we recount the many ways he has been gracious to us in the past, knowing that his character and disposition towards us will not change. And friends, let us respond with worship. Worshiping him with our voices and our hearts as we sing to him. Worshiping him with our lives as we trust in him for our salvation. Amen.